find a place to sit down and get comfortable. <clears throat> we're going to be a while, just kidding. Um, we're going to start a new series today, and the series that we're starting today is called Gratitude Adjustment. Gratitude Adjustment. How many of you parents have ever looked at your kids and said, you, my friend, need an attitude adjustment? How many of you kids have ever looked at your parents and said, you, my friend, need an attitude adjustment? It happens to all of us. Sometimes we get in a negative funk, we get in a negative rut, and we need an attitude adjustment. Similarly, I think sometimes we need a gratitude adjustment. Our gratitude gets out of whack, our gratitude gets diminished, and our outlook on our lives can become very negative. I know this is a pretty big generalization, but I think humanity as a whole, without intentionality, tends to slide into a negative place. Without being intentional, we can become pessimistic, we can get down, we can get discouraged pretty easily. The Bible is littered with more scriptures than I could ever possibly bake into one sermon series that say things like, give thanks. As it turns out, give thanks is 172 times in the Bible. Why would God put that in the Bible so many times? I think it's because he realizes our affinity for sliding towards being negative and getting down and discouraged, and he recommends to give thanks as a prescription to get out of that negative place. I'm going to start out this sermon series in a similar time period to I. I ended our last sermon series on the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. You'll remember that Paul, Timothy, and Silas went to Macedonia to share the gospel on one of Paul's missionary journeys. And when Paul would preach, oftentimes people would give their lives to Christ. But also, every time he preached, he seemed to be met with opposition and disruption. Oftentimes, that opposition and disruption led to Paul getting thrown into prison. And in those days when you were in prison, it's a little bit different than these days. In those days, when you were in prison, nobody would have anything unless someone from the outside brought it to them. You didn't eat unless somebody brought you food. You didn't have any clothes unless someone brought you clothes. And in the book of Philippians, we learn that Paul is once again in prison. He wasn't even entirely sure whether he would be released or be executed, but he trusted God even in that place that said, God, whatever you do with my life, I trust you. But what truly comforted Paul's heart is that the Philippian church sent a member of their church, a man named Aphroditus, to once again bring a financial gift to Paul. And the gift that the Philippian church gave to Paul was so significant, it was so costly to them, that it actually left the Philippian church in a place of need. They gave so generously that they themselves were left in a place of lack. Paul was so deeply moved by their generosity that he wrote them a letter, and that letter is the book of Philippians. That letter is almost like a thank you letter to that church, and it culminates in chapter 4. And I'm going to look at chapter 4. We're going to read verses 10 through 20 this morning. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, 
both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again to my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all in abound. I am full, having received from Aphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now Paul knew that there was no way he could possibly repay the church at Philippi. There was no way he could do it, but he penned these words in verse 19 and 20, and this is where we're going to camp out today. He said, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to start out with just a a short personal testimony. This is one of my favorite scriptures. It's truly become an anchor for my soul in times of trouble and challenge. I've drawn more hope from it than I could even put into words. Every word of this verse is like a perfectly prescribed medicine to my soul. And if each word is true, which I believe every word is true, it becomes the basis for giving perpetual thanks to God. When we put our faith in the reality that our God will supply for all of our needs, not based on what we have, but based on his riches, it leaves us in a place where we can plant ourselves in a lifestyle of giving thanks. Not we can give thanks on a Sunday morning when the worship team hits the song just right, and that's our favorite song. But no, we can live, literally live in the place of perpetually giving thanks. In verse 19, the first thing that Paul introduces us to is the provider. Verse 19 starts out with the phrase, my God. The words Paul used are extremely personal, they're experiential, and they're confident. It's as if Paul's relationship with his God is so firm and so established that he's standing on the biggest boulder that you could ever imagine that nothing could shake Paul in his relationship with, his, with his God. In this life, we're all going to go through hard times. Every one of us are. There's no way around it. But the thing that held Paul through the hard times of his life, and Paul knows something about going through hard times. This is like the third time Paul's been thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. Like He knows what it's like to suffer. The thing that held him, and the thing that will hold you and me in our lives, is knowing that this God of the universe is not just the God, he is my God. Even if we're super capable in life, even if you're someone who's really talented and gifted, your ability to provide for yourself is always going to be limited. But God's ability is never limited. Growing up, my dad taught me to be a hard worker, and that's something that I'm grateful that he taught me to do. And I can remember as I was going through life, that was just normal for me. It was just a part of who I was and who our family was and who, who my dad trained us to be. And I can remember one time I got a job, and it was like the first or second day I was on the job, and somebody came over and like leaned over to me and whispered in my ear and said, take it easy, you're going to make the rest of us look bad. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And that person later came and kind of tried to tell me how to make it look like I was working when I wasn't working. 
That person told me how to take shortcuts, and I'm like, it was like this person was speaking a different language. I didn't even understand. I'm like, my job is to make the boss look good and to make this company successful. Like, why are, I didn't even, I really didn't even understand what the person was saying. For someone who is a hard worker, it's been a little bit of a process and a journey for me learning to trust God as my provider. There's been a whole lot of times where my tendency would be to get out there and hustle, to get out there and try and make it happen on my own, but I've had to learn to step back and say, no, I am limited in my own ability to provide for me, but God has unlimited resources to provide for me. Life has a way of being bigger than us at times, and if you haven't experienced that in your life, it's probably just that you haven't lived long enough to experience that, but oftentimes life is bigger than we can even deal with. How many of you in your lifetime have had a serious financial curveball thrown at you that was bigger than you could handle? Probably most of us. Or maybe you've had a relational thing that you've gone through. Maybe something in your marriage or you lost a loved one or you're separated from someone. You've gone through some relational challenge that was just too much to even carry. We all go through things like that. And in those times, we need to remember that even if our ability to produce is limited, his ability to produce is unlimited. I can remember one specific time where April and I were in a place of need. Um, we, we had been married for a while, and we had kind of been learning this lesson that God is our provider. And that was a lesson that God was trying to teach us like from the time we got married. It was, was going to be a foundational lesson in our, in our family. This one time I took my car to get inspected, and my car didn't pass inspection. It had a bunch of stuff that was wrong with it. So we got all the stuff fixed that we needed to to get it to pass inspection. And it took pretty much all the money we had at the time to, to make that happen. A couple days later, I was driving up the East Hill in Warsaw, and I got about halfway up, and all of a sudden my RPM gauge started going real high, and I started going real slow, and I lost my transmission. So I kind of slowly going back down the hill a little bit, and I kind of turned around and just coasted down the East Hill, and a couple of friends were down by the stoplight, and they helped push me to my parking lot. So I was there, and I was kind of frustrated, like, man, what the heck? Like, I just fixed my car. Like, I'm trying my best to serve God and be faithful. Like, why would this happen to me? And I had a little pity party for a little while. And then I got over it and was like, okay, now i got to figure out what to do. So April and I prayed, and we were trying to figure out what to do. And April said, I, I said, maybe I should get another job. Like, maybe I should work nights for a while or something, or maybe get a second or a third job. And I was, like, trying to come up with a plan on my own, something that made sense in my mind. And April's like, I feel like we just need to like slow down for a second. I feel like there's something that God wants, us to, wants to teach us in this. And I'm like, okay. So I'm trying to slow down, but I'm not really slowing down. My mind is like trying to figure out what to do and trying to put together a plan. And April says, no, I feel like we need to slow down. Well, as it turns out, we were at a, a time in our life right then where even if I wanted to work another job, I probably couldn't have. Like even if I wanted to work nights, like eventually I'm going to have to sleep at some point. But then at church, I was super busy. Maybe some of you will remember when our church took a missions trip to Honduras, and we were getting ready for that missions trip, and we were, um, we were doing a huge fundraiser. We were doing a yard sale, and we were getting everything ready for that trip. So I had like three weeks where we were getting every, or two weeks where we were getting everything ready for the yard sale, then a week and a half of a yard sale, and then they had a week break, and then I was going to Honduras for two weeks. So like, even if I wanted to work another job, I kind of couldn't do it. It wasn't even really possible. And when I say a yard sale, you probably think of like 
a yard sale at your house, but this was like a yard sale that covered the entire parking lot. We had a huge tent set up, and it covered everything in the front yard. Like, it was a huge yard sale. So I was super busy getting everything ready for that. Pastor Tim and I were working like crazy trying to make it happen. We had to raise like $21,000 or $22,000 for our team. I think we had $3,000 at that time. So it's like, we got to make a lot of progress quick. So we're getting everything together for the yard sale. And then someone came up, and they, someone who used to go to our church, and they said, I have a van that we don't need anymore. We'll donate it to the yard sale. If you can sell it for $2,500, you can take the proceeds from it. If you can't sell it for $2,500, then just give it back to us, and we'll take it and do something else with it. So we're like, okay. So we parked the van out front and put a big for sale sign on it. We were trying to sell it. We were advertising that thing all over the place because that was going to pay for like two people's trip to Honduras. We were super excited. The yard sale came and finished, and we weren't able to sell the van. So I called the guy, and I said, hey, we weren't able to sell the van. You can come pick it up. He said, okay. So we came the next week to church to pick up the van, and we were talking for a little bit. He was curious about the missions trip, so I was telling him about that. And then uh, he said, I heard your car broke down. I said, yeah, the transmission went in it, and it was going to cost more for the transmission than the car was even worth, so we didn't even bother fixing it. And he threw me the keys. And he said, well, now you got a car. And I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah, I'll go get the title for it and sign it over to you. And that was such an important time for April and I, where the Lord was solidifying in our life that he was our provider. Now, April's big pimp in a Chevy Astro van that she was not very excited about. Um, but the Lord provided, nonetheless, it met the need in that time. And it was such an important lesson for us. That was like us getting the training wheels on the bike of our life of learning that God was going to be our provider. It wasn't just going to be me. He has resources that are far beyond anything that I have. The lesson that I was having to learn in that time and the lesson that we need to learn is that when Paul says, my God, the God that he's talking about is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Moses and Joshua and Samuel and Eli and John and Paul himself. It's the one true God, the only God who has a track record throughout all of time and history of being Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. This is the God. This is the God that's asking you to trust him as your provider. It's the one true God who has never failed at providing and whose resources are more than you and I could ever have on our own. So Paul shows us the provider, then he shares with us the promise. This is in verse 19. He says, And my God shall supply. Again, we need to look closely at Paul's words. He doesn't say, My God has supplied. He said, My God shall supply. This is a promise for your future and a promise for my future. So much time, so much time is spent worrying about the future. We spend so much time in our life concerned about what's to come, trying to figure out what's going to happen and how we're going to deal with it. So much time wasted worrying. How many of you guys remember Y2K? I asked Jocelyn last night if she knew what Y2K was, and I was wondering if someone her age like, had heard about it. And she pulled up her phone. She's like, yeah, I know about it. And she turns around her phone, and she shows me Y2K fashion, like how people dressed in the year 2000. I'm like, that's not what I mean. Like the event, Y2K, no clue what I'm talking about. So for anybody who's younger, you can ask your parents about it later and they'll explain it to you. But 
Here we are, it's 1999, and we find out the world is going to come to an end. Like, computers aren't going to work. We're not going to be able to get our money out of the bank. People are going to the bank trying to get all their money out, but the bank doesn't have that much money on hand. It's, like, really bad. Like, it's going to be like a zombie apocalypse, right? Like, we're not going to be able to buy food. We're, nothing is going to work. The elect, electrical grid is going to go down. Like, this is on the news every night in 1999. So it gets to... The, the last day of December 1999, and we're all sitting in front of the TV, not really caring about the ball dropping. We're waiting for the world to end, and it strikes the last minute, and then it becomes the year 2000, and everyone looks around, and the electricity is still on, and literally nothing happened. It was like the nothing burger of the century. Like, I can remember my friend, my friend took me to his parents' basement like a month before the end of the year. He's like, you got to see my parents' basement. My parents have lost their mind. I'm like, all right, let's go see what it is. So we get down there. They've got 10 55-gallon drums full of water, enough toilet paper to last forever, pretty much. I'm sure they were using that paper up until the toilet paper crisis during COVID. Like, <laughs> so they have beans and rice. They have an entire room filled with canned goods. Like, everyone was planning for the end of the world, and literally nothing happened. I can remember during uh, the pandemic, there was a time where there was a new variant that came out and everyone was kind of freaking out and worried about that and trying to figure out what, was gonna, what that was going to look like, whether it was going to be worse. And the next morning on the news, we see Japanese murder hornets are found in the U.S. Like, everybody's like, like, as if we don't have enough to worry about. Now we have Japanese murder hornets. But as it turns out, Japanese murder hornets seemed to come and go, and our life just went on like normal. The thing is, whether it's Y2K or COVID or an election or Japanese murder hornets, there is always something the enemy is trying to use to steal your gratitude. There is always going to be something he's trying to use to steal your peace, to steal your worship, to steal your joy. Just be honest for a second. Just think about this for a second. How much has the enemy stolen from you with his weapon of worry? How much of your time, how much of your peace, your joy, your contentment, your gratitude, your worship, how much of that has the enemy stolen from you with his weapon of worry? Many times over things like Y2K that literally didn't even happen, or things that turned out to be not that big of a deal, like the murder hornets. Or things that you don't even have any control over anyways, even if they are going to turn into a big deal. What Paul wants us to see here is that we can trust God with our future. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We really do serve a God that shall supply. What are you worried about in the future? I want you to just think about just one thing for a second. Maybe that's hard for some of you to even narrow down. Maybe you're worried about a lot of things. What's one thing you're worried about? Maybe losing a loved one or maybe not having enough money or maybe being alone. What's that one thing you're worried about? Now, our greatest need in life is salvation. And look at the lengths that God went to to meet our greatest need. He sent his one and only son to live a perfect and sinless life and die a horrible, gruesome death on the cross to meet your greatest need and my greatest need. 
If God is willing to go to those lengths to meet our greatest need, I'm pretty sure he can handle the little things of our life that we're worried about. I was talking to someone recently. It was someone I had never met before. And this person was so bound up by worry and anxiety that when this person left my office, I, I wrote down to the best of my memory what that conversation looked like, and I want to read it to you. I was getting kind of stressed out, like even just talking to this lady. I was like, man, this lady is struggling big time. I was trying to understand why she was so worked up, and so I asked her to explain it to me. She said, I text my husband, and he doesn't respond, and I start filling in the space. She said, I start to think he flipped his car, and he's gasping for air, and he died alone on the side of 390. I'm thinking like, wow, that escalated quickly. I said, did this happen? Is that what happened to your husband? She said, no, he was listening to a podcast, and he missed my text. I said, oh, okay. I said, what else? She said, I text my friend, and she, if she doesn't respond quickly, I know she must be mad at me. She must hate me. So I send another text saying, are you there? Did you get my text? Then I think she's probably showing my text to another friend and turning her against me. So then I send her like four or five question marks in a row, and I said, hello, are you there? Do you get my message? I said, okay, what else? She said, if I drive by a friend and they don't wave, then I know there must be a problem. I figure she doesn't want to associate with me because they make more money than we do. She doesn't want to be seen with us, so she doesn't wave because she doesn't want people to know that we're friends because we're poor. She said, so what do you think, Pastor? And I said, well, I think I don't want to take very long to answer you because if I take more than about two seconds, I'm scared of what you're going to dream up about me. You know, you can look at this lady and you can think she's crazy, and she was, but so are you and so am I. And we all take space in relationships, and sometimes we fill in that space with things. We, sometimes we fill in that space with things that we're worried about or we're afraid of. Or sometimes we fill in that space by not believing the best about people. We believe the worst about people. If you do that in relationships, that's obviously not a very healthy thing, and that's going to cause a lot of stress and anxiety and maybe even pain in a relationship. But what about when you fill in the space in your relationship with God? What about when God doesn't respond on your time scale? What about when God doesn't seem to answer? What about when God doesn't give us the answer that we think he should? What about when God seems quiet? This is the place where filling in the space in your relationship with God, with the promise that he's already spoken to us in his word, will literally change your life. If you take this space in your relationship with God, times where you feel like God's not answering you quick enough, and you fill it in with the promise that my God shall supply, it will literally change your life. Thing is, sometimes we get confused about what God providing for us means. We think God providing for us means he'll provide a Range Rover, but God thinks providing for us means he's going to give us a Highlander. We think God providing for us means we need new clothes, but as it turns out, God thinks providing for us means he's going to teach us to get out of debt because he realizes what that burden on our shoulder is actually doing to us. We think God providing for us means we need a, a vacation, but God thinks providing for us is learning to teach us to actually walk in peace. 
We think we need a day to veg out and watch Netflix, but Jesus thinks we need a day to learn to drink of living water that will actually fill our soul to the point where we won't thirst again. We have to learn to discipline ourselves to fill in the space in our relationship with God with the promises he's already spoken to us. When you ask God for something and he doesn't respond or doesn't respond with the answer you wanted, you must remind yourself of what is true. The word of God is true. And any lie that speaks against the word of God, anything that speaks against the word of God is a lie. And the word of God tells us that he shall supply our needs. But what will he supply? Paul tells us this. He calls it the provision. In verse 19 it says, And my God shall supply all your needs. All your needs is pretty encompassing. Like what is excluded from that? Really nothing. Paul had a material need, and the church at Philippi gave sacrificially to meet that material need. And we learn that they gave so extravagantly that it actually left them in a place of need. It left them in a place of lack themselves. And Paul gives them a promise that says, my God shall supply all your needs. He made a promise that's so wide and vast and universal that it's actually giant compared to what they gave. So the church in Philippi gave a financial gift to Paul. And when they gave it, it seemed huge to them. Like it left them in a place of lack themselves. It seemed like a huge financial gift. But then when you see the promise that God gave to them, based on that gift that they gave, their gift all of a sudden looks minuscule compared to the giant promise that God gave to supply all of their needs. And the needs that God said he would supply, it weren't just limited to the material needs. They met a material need, but the need that God promised to supply was all of their needs, their emotional needs, their physical needs, all their well-being. God promised to care for all of their needs. Who do you look at as your provider? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a parent or a spouse, or maybe it's the government, or maybe yourself. The thing is, when you look at someone or something other than God as your provider, you're looking at someone or something that's very small compared to God. You're looking at someone who's much less capable than God, someone who's much less powerful than God, someone who has very, very, very small resources compared to the resources that God has. We are so blessed, and it's so easy for us to forget how blessed we are. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and in that podcast, Mark Cuban was being interviewed. And Mark Cuban owns the Dallas Mavericks, and uh, he's an investor on the hit show, The Shark Tank. And on Shark Tank, they take people who have ideas or inventions or something, and then the investors can either sow financially into their company or sometimes they'll buy their whole company. And so this person that was interviewing Mark Cuban was asked, first they were talking about how much his investment in the Dallas Mavericks has produced, and it's incredible what it's produced. Then they talked about his investment in these different companies. And some of these companies flopped and didn't do anything, but some of them made him vast sums of money. And they asked him, how does it feel to be one of the richest men in the world? And he thought for a second and he said, 
feels normal, I guess. And then he kind of thought for a second more, and he said, I don't actually think I am one of the richest men in the world. And the lady looked at him, and she said, it's not really something that's up for debate. You are one of the richest men in the world. Your net worth is $5 billion. And he thought about it for a second, and he said, you know, so a couple weekends ago, I was hanging out with Elon, meaning Elon Musk. And he said, I came back from that weekend with Elon, and I thought to myself, I have virtually nothing compared to Elon. He said, like, his net worth is $200 billion. He said, if I was trying to spend his money, like just trying to get rid of it all, I don't even know how I would do it. I don't even know what I would buy. I don't even know how I could get rid of it. He said, like, I'm still a frugal guy. I make my own coffee in the morning, and I pack my lunch in a brown paper bag, and like, I don't even know what I would do with $200 billion. He said, last summer, I uh, vacationed off the coast of Italy with Jeff Bezos. He said, I walked away from that. I felt poor compared to Jeff. I literally thought like I was poor. Like, he has so much money, I can't even imagine having that kind of money. We tend to do the same thing in our life. We have a measuring stick that we have built ourselves to compare ourselves to the people around us. And with that measuring stick, we then determine if we are or are not blessed, if God has provided for us or he hasn't provided for us. When in reality, there are none of our needs that have gone unmet. God has met all of our needs over and over and over and over and over again. So many times we decide whether or not we feel blessed or whether or not God has provided for us based on this measuring stick that we built that is based on comparing ourselves to the people around us. We forget the times that God miraculously provided for us in the past. We forget the times he opened doors for us to walk through that seemed and felt impossible. We forget that he gives us air to breathe so that we can go work a job to provide for our family. We forget that he gives us the strength to do that. He designed our body and our mind to work together in the most incredible, complicated way. We take it all for granted. We ought to have gratitude on the tip of our tongue every second of every day for all that God has done for us. What this type of gratitude is tied to is it's tied to trust. It's tied to faith. It's trust to believe tied to believing that God will supply all of our needs like he promised he would. As we start out this series on gratitude, I want to ask you this morning just to take a quick survey of your life. Is it filled with gratitude? Do you see things all around your life to be thankful for? Or do you just see everything that's wrong in your life? Do you see a thousand things around you to thank God for all the time? Or do you just look around and see what's wrong with the world? Maybe this morning you need a gratitude adjustment. I don't normally give homework on Sunday mornings. I know most of you kids try and get away from that on the weekend, but I have some homework for you guys. I have a, an assignment for you this week. I want you to make a list of all the times in your life that you can remember and think of that God has provided in one way or another. Make a list of all the times where he met a need, where he answered a prayer, where he showed up and proved that he was faithful in your life. I want you to make that list, and I want you to spend some time every day that week, this week, reading that list, looking over it, adding to it as you remember. And I want you to let that 
cause gratitude to grow in your heart until it spills over and spills out of your mouth and you begin to thank God for his incredible care and provision in your life. Would you bow your heads? God, you are a God that has done what you promised you would do. You've supplied all of our needs. So many times we take it for granted. We don't even see it. We barely even pay attention. You met a need, and we don't even remember praying, asking you to meet the need. We just move on to the next thing. Lord, I ask you to help us to have eyes to see your provision in our life. See the places where you provided for us, where you met a need. And Lord, as we see those things, let gratitude arise in our heart and let it spill out of our mouth. Lord, so many of us have wasted so much time in our life worrying over things that didn't even happen, things that we made up. We took the space in our relationship with you and we assumed the worst of you. Lord, let us see little places all throughout our life where you have been faithful. Little times all throughout our life that you provided. Times that you showed up. And God calls us to be a people that are full of gratitude. Lord, I ask for each person who's here this morning as they, as they do this assignment, Lord, I ask that you would show up in each one of their lives. That you would show up and meet them while they're reading over the lists. And they would encounter the God that does what he said he would do and supplies for all of our needs. I ask you to bless each one as they go from this place this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.